a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Coming up on this week's show, how you can play over 2,500 MS-DOS games in your browser. One of the best two-player games ever is back. And we get stories from inside Atari, Activision and Gremlin from Sean McClure. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 197, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Parks. And welcome to our first show of November. What are you looking at me for? I thought you were going to play a sound effect. That's it. Is it too early for this? It's far too early. Alan you know Partridge. No. <laughs> but you know what it's not too early for? What? For me, you and Ravi to start cramming in all the revision we can get for the Christmas wait, quiz. Wait, wait, wait a minute. So we're doing a Christmas quiz, but Dan has never actually been like a quiz participant. He's, ne- he's, he's never been a participated. He's always been quiz master. So maybe he? I won't be the worst this time. Well, who, who <laughs> I won't get too optimistic. Well, hopefully me and Ravi won't lose. Because <laughs> you're not on the same team this we're time. We're not on yet, the same so. team this time. We've been separated. I feel like I've lost a limb. I've lost my brother. Oh, you can have him back if you want. Oh, it's okay. Well, I don't know, actually. I kind of want to just to see if we can redeem ourselves. So, Well, this is the retro our annual Christmas super quiz. Now, it's something we've done. This would be, what, our third or fourth year of doing this Yeah, now, so yeah. if you want to listen back, you know, you've got a couple yeah. of super quizzes where you can go through the questions and prepare yourself for this year. Now, this is going to be a quiz with a bit of a twist, as you mentioned then. Usually I set the questions, and uh, in the past we've had uh, Ravi and Joe being on one team, the Retro Hour team, unfortunately lost about three times now. Yeah, we've never won. <laughs> <laughs> we don't rep the podcast well. <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Paul Drury and uh, Ollie Wilmot, they're on the other team. But this year, we thought we'd swap things up a little bit to kind of give everyone a fighting chance. And they're going to set the questions this time around. Now, I must admit, like you guys said then, this is the first year that I've actually been a contestant on the quiz. And Ollie's a bit of a quiz master, isn't he? As literally well. a so, quiz master. Literally a quiz master. So these could be tough ones, guys. Now, I've got a feeling it might be because he actually does a monthly retro gaming quiz mm. here in Nottingham. Um, if you want to go along, actually, I'll put a link in our show notes to his Facebook page. Um, we're going to go along and check out one of these before he hosts the I quiz. I feel like we should go in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered if you had any uh, advice for uh, me if I was going to do a retro gaming podcast at Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Tweak your fake beard. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think we should go along and kind of see what kind of questions they're going to be setting because I've got a feeling this might be a bit brutal. I don't know whether they're going to kind of play it nice or whether they're going to kind of just really want to show us what they're making. Well, we also do a best of show as well. Yeah. So we kind of just look at the highlights for the years and it's, it's good because 
if you guys want to look back at a few episodes that we really pick out ourselves, and then you can go back and check the episodes in the back catalogue. It's an easy show for us because we're normally drunk that week. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> this is very true. Yeah, so we are getting into that time of year now. Welcome to our first show of November. Things are not winding down for the party season just yet, though, because we've actually got a really good guest this week. Now, we're going to be joined by Sean McClure. Now, he's got some amazing stories from his time inside Atari, worked for them briefly, Activision he was at too, Gremlin, Infograms, he had a really interesting history. And I think this is actually the first podcast he's ever actually done an audio interview with. And he did a really good text interview with Arcade Attack a couple of years ago. First time he's been on the phone and actually done a chat on a podcast. Awesome. So, so this is going to be really good. And I've got to give a big thank you to Kieran Hawkin. Um, who arranged this interview for us. And also, um, you know, he's been really helpful with the podcast as well. Uh, Lads Lair on YouTube. Yeah, Lads Lair on YouTube. And also, he, I mean, he writes for Retro Gamer magazine. And he's got a new book that I think is, should be out this weekend, all about the Atari. Now, this is about, um, it's a really good book, a compendium of Atari 8-bit games. So, you know, if you love systems like the Atari 400 and the 800, he's got some great interviews in there as well. And he's covering some of the best games on this system. So if you want to get hold of this, I'll put a link to um, the link on Amazon. Like with all of Kieran's books, I mean, he does these for passion, so they're really affordable books. And uh, now we're talking about this time of year. We'll make a nice little stocking filler, maybe for yourself. So big thanks to Kieran for the uh, help on this interview. And I'll put a link to his new book in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our guests this week, it's time to roll out the red carpet and give a big thank you to the people who've allowed us to get through another year of doing the Retro Hour podcast. Now, nearly at the end of our fourth year of doing this show, almost episode 200 that's coming up very soon as well. And that is really thanks to you guys. Now, every week on the show, we call it a little tip jar because essentially that's what it is. If you like what we do for the cost of a cup of coffee or a secondhand game or anything you want to donate, it all goes back into the running of this podcast and will allow us to uh, keep going into 2020. And all you have to do, if you'd like to make a little donation and find yourself in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame, is nip onto our website at theretrohour.com, click on the Supporters tab there. You can donate via PayPal or direct from your app on your phone, paypal at theretrohour.com. And for doing that, we'll show you a bit of love on the show. Just like this week, Vince Hart, Andre Bloomkamp, Gary Heather, Simon Buckner, who all made donations into the running of the show. And you can do the same at theretrohour.com and we will try and mince your name as well. <laughs> now, we do try our best to pronounce more correctly. <laughs> not doesn't always happen. But... Sometimes there's got to be about three or four takes. <laughs> <laughs> but we do appreciate it all the same. I'm sure some people just write down names just to catch us out somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've done that a few yeah. times. So. I, I would. I would. <laughs> now, before we get into our guests this week, some good stories to talk about on this week's show. MS-DOS games. Now, I've actually been messing around with my old... I've got a, a 486 PC. It's the one I did the video on. Probably about six months ago now. Uh, if you haven't seen this video, I filmed it. Because you were around my house today, Ravi, when we are recording this. And <laughs> my kitchen, you could say it's quite... The feminine touch is quite strong in my kitchen, you could say. I love your flowery wallpaper. You mean your whole house? <laughs> well, what do you, it's, it's 50-50, I think. I think I've got the balance about it. Well, the right. thing is, you know, I'm missing the ladies' touch and... Dan's got too much of it. <laughs> <laughs> Always been my problem, that, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, I did a video of <laughs> my 486 on the kitchen table with my wife's Kath Kidson tablecloth on there, her flowery wallpaper that only covers one wall. And literally, probably about 80% of the comments in that video were, were like, do you live with your grandma? It was all about that. But... I've took the PC back into my office, you know, around all my manly stuff oh, yeah. and all that. Yeah. Been playing on manly a manly few... beige wallpaper. Yeah, <laughs> and a bit of wood grain as well. Yeah. You know, it's kind of getting in there now as well. Um, musky smell when you walk in that room, mm. you know. Mm. I've been in there nonstop sweating. Usually, for days. Just smells of raid. 
you know, the right. insect repellent. That's got, some, that's got something like you. I'm terrified of spiders. And this time of year, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh, God. You know, Joe was around my house a few months ago, and I spotted a spider in my bathroom. Now, it's fair to say I'm scared of spiders. Joe's more scared of spiders. You, I'm terrified you of spiders. You wimps, mate. Well, I'd, I got... And, and I'm, I'm not afraid to say this. I got Dan's wife to take me to the toilet and check the toilet first. Get, a, get a cat. They just eat the spiders. <laughs> well, but anyway, back anyway, to the subject anyway. of 486 PCs. MS-DOS games. Now, for me, growing up as an Amiga gamer, and like you, looking at MS-DOS games, it was always a bit like kind of bizarro world, you know, like kind of seeing you know, how the other was, half kind it of... It was lived. weird because... Why? Did you find it weird looking at better games? Oh, you know, it was, it was weird because there's kind of a really long period of MS-DOS games. When you get yeah. it, it starts with like the CGA games and the uh, EGA, you know, really early ones. And then you get into like Tomb Raider was a DOS game. Yeah. You know, and even the okay. 3D stuff was kind of DOS titles. And I only really realized this when I started using DOSBox, the emulator. And I'm like, oh, God, that was an actual DOS game. And you really don't think about it, you know, if you were running Windows on top of this. Yeah, I've got stuff like, you know, Lion King game that, you know, to me is a Mega Drive game, but, you know, it's yeah. a really good version on MS-DOS, actually. Well, if you uh, do harken back to those days, because, I mean, MS-DOS is an interesting period because, like you said then, it really started in kind of the 8-bit era, then went through the 32-bit era. Mm-hmm. A lot of these games ran the DOS platform. And you did see the evolution there going from the PC built-in beeper speaker yeah. and those 16-color screens. Sound oh, card support. Yeah. Remember that auto-detect in MS-DOS that you had to do oh, on the sound cards? IRQ yeah. conflicts and all that, you know, did a of those days. So if you want to relive all those glory days of uh, DMA conflicts and everything, without all the hassle actually, you can now play over 2,500 free MS-DOS games directly in your browser. And of course, this is thanks to our good friends at archive.org. Yeah, they're absolutely fabulous. You know, um, these browser games are great because uh, kind of you're at work and you can just minimise your browser yeah. when you've got them on. You don't need a big emulator set up. I don't know if you're on about Remy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's some really good stuff they've got on here. They've got, you know, a game we were talking about last week, actually. We were talking about Halloween. Alone in the Dark is on here. Oh, yeah. You can play that in your browser. And um, also got, you know, stuff like Punisher. If you're a fan of that game, The Punisher, that was a really big game. You know, if you love Skyrim or Oblivion, they've a lot got of point the, and clicks as well, I guess, yeah. The old Elder Scrolls games are on there as well. Um, Red Guard from 1998. I mean, they actually go quite into the late 90s. Yeah. A lot of these games have got on there. I never imagined that you'd be able to just play these games in a web browser at work. It's crazy, yeah, it still isn't blows it? My yeah. mind. And the thing about archive.org is, I think they're a bit more protected than your typical kind of emulation website, being like essentially an online museum. Well, we've had Jason Scott yeah. on the podcast and he's talked about their kind of legal team and how yeah. powerful they are at kind of protecting yeah. themselves. You know, these guys put out Nintendo ROMs online yeah. to play for free. <laughs> Obviously, it got took down, but, you know, they're in that position that they can kind of do this and that they can legally cover themselves, which is fantastic. We need more things like archive.org, I think. And now we are getting into this time of year when, your know, Christmas parties are coming up soon and that. Everyone slacks off work this time of year. I know, Joe, you take, like, three-hour lunch breaks doing your Christmas shopping and Oh, God, yeah, so, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, so if you just want to doss around and make it look like you're busy bashing away on the keyboard, I'll put a link in our show. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> now, one thing that I did used to waste a lot of time on, not when I was working, but when I was at college and uni, was um, Yahoo Groups. Now, do you remember Yahoo Groups? It's kind of... It was an early kind of forum. It came around, they say in this article here, 2001. 
I remember them being around a bit earlier. Than Yahoo that. groups. I remember GeoCities groups and all of that kind of stuff. So was it like a clone of that? Because I remember the the, the, the groups would originally come from Usenet. Yeah. And maybe that was like Yahoo's copy version of that. I never really got into it, to be honest. Well, this was, I believe, from memory. It's not mentioned in this article here, but they actually bought a company called eGroups, I think, okay. and then rebranded it maybe in 2001, as this article So says. these were like... Probably what pages are now or groups on Facebook were. Yeah, kind of like Facebook groups, I guess, an early early version of that, you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Essentially, you'd have members in there who could all communicate, leave messages in a big thread. You'd have yeah. file sections. You could put images I remember in there. the briefcases were good for piracy. That's all I remember. <laughs> Trust you. And GeoCities, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean... I, I remember going on at Cost um, Amiga Format Magazine. I used to have a, a mailing list called AFB, Amiga Format Bulletin. Okay. And that ran on Yahoo Groups. And actually, last year, I came across some of my old posts from the late 90s. Wow. On here, and I was like, God, I remember doing that when I was like, you know, sitting <laughs> in my room, my mum and dad's house. Reading your old posts is always cringy. But it turns out my old posts are not going to be online for much longer because Yahoo is finally closing down its group's website and deleting all the content. They're going to disappear on December 14th this year. Well, I think this is where a site like archive.org yeah. would probably do a concerted effort to try and archive this and save it all because I know they have saved a lot of the old GeoCity sites, Angel Fire. So hopefully someone will be able to get the whole of the groups and have it on a downloadable archive so we can find all of Dan's old embarrassing posts. <laughs> but it is, <laughs> I mean, forever. Yeah. It, it is kind of sad when stuff like that goes offline because it does kind of feel like a kind of a digital preservation of history. And sometimes, I mean, I do find it interesting to go into Usenet via Yahoo and or Google and look at posts from like 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, I'm covering like the first mention of the World Wide Web mm. on Usenet when Tim Berners-Lee did that post. I've created this new thing, hypertext. But it, and it's, it's also weird as well, perceptions from the world. So like, yeah. you know, I, I went to America recently. Everybody's using Bing. Yeah. I was like, Bing, what, what? We don't even use that in the UK. And Yahoo, there's a Bing, lot of people. Bing for me is that search engine that you put Google into. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's apparently pretty good for um, adult content. Is oh. it? So, so, uh-huh. so, but, tells me. But you know, oh, okay. there was a lot of there was a lot of email people uh, with still with Yahoo addresses and stuff. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people still with AOL addresses and stuff. And it's it's crazy to think the different countries, which are still mm. kind of related to different services. I understand Yahoo auctions is really big in Japan. Yeah, yeah I'd heard that actually. Yahoo auctions is the biggest auction site in Japan. So, if you ever want anything from Japan, apparently Yahoo Auctions is the go-to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I do think the fact that when the shutdown stuff like GeoCities are now mm. closing down the groups, you know, when they're kind of getting rid of a piece of internet history, it always makes me a bit sad. And the saying here, you know, this article says you can download your own messages by logging into your Yahoo account, if you remember the password. Yeah. Um, I actually did log into my Yahoo account a few years ago, and there's an email right at the top from Yahoo going, congratulations on using Yahoo Mail for 20 years. Oh, wow. wow. I was like, wow, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't make me feel old. Yeah, I've still so, got an old Hotmail address. So. Yeah, I, Hotmail, is yours a .com? I've just pulled my headphones out. <laughs> Can you not hear me across the room? Yeah, yeah. mine is a .com. Yeah. Yeah. Mine's a .co.uk. Is it? That's one of the later ones, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I think I set my Hotmail up in 96, I want to say. Oh, really? Mine was like 2001 yeah. or something yeah. like that. You amateur. It's all live.com now, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, I do hope someone does preserve this. The fact that it's going offline in like six weeks, they've got to be fast if yeah. they want to do it. But I mean, I didn't with GeoCities, didn't Yahoo kind of give the, the archives to... I think so. I think because the, yeah. the Angel Fire ones I tried to access because I was on that, but it was yeah. really complex. Like you have to request something from the database and stuff. So I think, you know, the Yahoo one's been archived well, so it can actually be put out in a web form yeah. or d- displayed on that. We had that beautiful 
um, I mean GeoCities, we had that beautiful site that we mentioned earlier, which was all of the GeoCities neighbourhoods, and you could zoom yeah, yeah. into each neighbourhood and kind of see what people were discussing then. And this is like it's digital archaeology, really, isn't it? Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, this stuff, I think, in future generations, like 100, 200 years... The fact that we're just getting rid of all this stuff does feel a bit wrong. It's kind of like burning old books from years ago. That people well, we've moved so quickly yeah. in, in the kind of internet mm. and technology. You know, all, all this conversation is going to be lost. Yeah. Hopefully the Retro Hour website will never be deleted after us. After us no, I archive it, mate. Yeah. Back up, master. Yeah. If you're listening to this in the year 3000 or something, then I uh, hope you're enjoying it. Yeah. Leave a donation. <laughs> Is Amiga still yeah. going? Our great grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Now, speaking of something good from back in the day... You love this music. Oh, yeah, yeah. Top, top, top game. Bubble, bubble. All right. One of my favorite two-player games ever. Yeah. I was actually playing this with my little six-year-old nephew, Harry. Um, and he never played it before. He absolutely loved it. Oh, really? Yeah. It is a game. Since we went in the arcades, me and my brother as kids, even though it was an old game then, you know, we were in the arcades in the 90s, it was a game that we'd always rush to. It came out in 1986, bubble, bubble. Obviously, it had stuff like Rainbow Islands after yeah. Parasol Stars as well. Well, now there is another bubble, bubble game coming, and it's going to be an exclusive to the Nintendo Switch. Now, this is Bubble Bubble 4. Essentially, it's an HD upgrade of Bubble Bubble, but they are going to be having some of the original levels in here as well. Oh, cool. Wow, this is cool. I like that the, they've actually got the original maps and it's like firing up yeah, like they yeah. used to. It looks bloody beautiful as well. I'm just having a look at this now. I'm flooding back with memories here, playing this with my uncle and his NES. In the Although, early 90s. It's got new music though. You know what? Ooh. You know, this is going to open it up as well to multiplayer gaming online. Yeah, that kind of gaming. Play, right? So, yeah, yeah. you know, four, four player co op. That'd be good. And there is just something about these games. I mean, again, by the looks of it, the actual gameplay mechanic hasn't really changed all that much from yeah. the original game, but it's a timeless gameplay mechanic. You don't want to mess with that too much. And this is the thing. It, like you say, it's timeless. And it's that addictive yeah. gameplay as well. You know, just put one more coin in, obviously it's going to be on the Switch and stuff. And, 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 I, and I can I, imagine just being kind of stuck on it in bed at night, just still playing it, going, one more game, one more game. <laughs> Four in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Let's get away in the morning. If they have the really slick controls like the arcade original, that would be wicked. Yeah. yeah. I really hope they can. When's this due that? out? 19th of November. Yeah, so only a couple of so weeks, a couple of weeks from now. It's going to be a so, physical release as well on yeah, the Switch. So Christmas game there. There you go. That's why you need a Switch. James. Yeah, this is why I need a Switch. <laughs> but again, I mean, everyone in the comment thread here on Nintendo Life is saying day one purchase. And again, that's another one for me. I mean, you know, when we're getting this time of year, when you're going to have a bit of time off work, hopefully, this is a perfect game to sit down yeah, with all the family yeah, as well. Yeah. But maybe you're a little bit too addicted to video games. Maybe you want to check into the NHS Video Game Addiction Recovery Clinic. Yeah, so this well, is a thing. This is yeah. this is not a first as well because I remember seeing a lot. I actually watched a documentary on video game addiction in China. As well, and there's been some absolute tragic cases yes. of people neglecting children, animals and stuff to play games. And, yeah. you know, I think it's all to do with the personality, but I I think it's good that they're doing this because, you know, it's weird, isn't it? Like, we all played video games when we were kids, but uh, has it affected us? Has it changed how we... Or, or is it the type of game that they play? You know, it's... Yeah, it's a, diff it's a difficult one to answer, isn't it? But this is the first of its kind in the UK. Yeah, so this NHS, is going to be... Now, they're saying that the, the story here is on... It's on the NHS website, actually. The headline is, Children Treated for Computer Gaming Addiction Under NHS Long-Term Plan. Now, they're saying kids and young adults who are seriously addicted to computer games yeah. will now get help from the NHS after the launch of the country's first specialist clinic. So, again, I mean, it's kind of like... I think if you've got that personality... Anything can be addictive. Yeah, I think if you've got the addictive personality, but I think with the the rise of like you know 
games like Fortnite and stuff, really, really, really kind of getting into the public eye and just seeing how children are with it and how big it is because it's it's pretty. I think with the multiplayer stuff, it seems to be yeah. peer pressure. And the thing is, like, fair dues, you could sit and play a game of Civilization by yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A long time ago, but now it's like you have clans, you have pressure, and you have a. a kind of duty to join your clan and you must perform yeah, as much it, as that kind of like it's strange that kind of kind of bringing it back to the addiction kind of thing it's kind of like that peer pressure of like when we were at school it was like oh you don't smoke or you know have a have a cigarette it's cool and stuff but now i can imagine it's very like oh my god you don't play fortnite you've not got a playstation 4 and fortnite and yeah you know, i couldn't imagine it. what it would be like i remember when mobile phones first came in at school yeah, yeah. and you know before mobile phones, uh, it was weird, you know, totally strange. And now I can imagine all this online gaming and stuff. It could be really odd for a kid, and especially if they, they have problems anyway, then, you yeah, know, it's yeah. just going to add to them, not help. Well, in a way, I guess, so. you know, if you have got, it's kind of escapism as well, though, isn't it? Mm. You know, if, if you are having, you know. But that can really like, help people yeah. as well, yeah. you know. But uh, they're kind of quite into gambling problem. That's, that's what yeah, saying, yeah, serious problems, yeah. I think that's the, yeah. the, the real kind of thing. They're not going to get some kid that's just yeah. playing I'm, Minecraft a couple yeah. of times a day. Right, you're going in the clinic. Some kid that's getting really aggressive or that's having neglecting their yeah. work or neglecting I th- life. I think, you know, I think Dan hit the nail on the head there, you know, comparing it to gambling, really. That's probably the closest. Yeah. The closest I could think of mm. kind of behaviour. But you know thing. what? I don't have any time to play video games anymore, guys. Now that we talk about And yet about you're them, on a retro game yeah. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I do remember this being an issue there for a long time. I remember reading something on... Uh, God, it must have been like a, an email thread or a, a humour website or something saying, I did, I, I'm not addicted to video games. When I got into my early 20s, you know, I used to play Pac-Man a lot as a kid. I didn't run around a darkened room munching pills and listening to repetitive music. So. <laughs> well, well, did you, did you always, you always had that kid who was your friend and you'd go around and you'd play a game with him and he'd lose and he'd be like, ah! Yeah, like yeah. smashing up his Rage controller, yeah, losing yeah. it, and you'd just be looking at him like, what is wrong with you, mate? You know, and that's that's the kind of uh, personality that probably needs to go to this place. No, normally yeah. me when Joe beats me at Mortal Kombat. <laughs> it really happens, I'm so, so, uh, Yeah, whatever. <laughs> so if you do need to but check in. <laughs> I, f- I think it's really good that they're addressing yeah, it, it, you know, and uh, this isn't just happening in England. This is happening worldwide. Definitely. Well, let's talk about this guy who um, I think we've covered him before on the show. Now, this is a dentist who's spent quite a substantial amount of money on some rare games. Man f- shows off about games that he bought again. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> yeah. Now, we, we did come out. I think Ravi's, to clean it up a little bit, he goes, we've talked about this book before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just a bit shocked that the Washington Post keep, um, like the Washington Post, big, big media people keep covering him. He's bought a load yeah. of games. Great. So what's, <laughs> what's the story then? So we've got a guy uh, who lives in Florida. Eric Nairman. Eric Nairman, who is a dentist. Yep. Uh, obviously, we're in the wrong profession. Getting paid too much. Um, who recently moved from collecting um, baseball cards because it became too expensive, sold them all, and became a video game hobbyist. So he collects NES games, and he's bought 40 factory-sealed retro games for just over a little bit over a million dollars. I think it's $1.02 million okay. he spent on these. Um, and they're all factory sealed. We've not got a list of the 40 games, but we do know it includes Mario Brothers, uh, Golf, the black box version, 
uh, and Balloon Fight, I believe it That's is. That's the only known copy of it sealed. Yeah, the only known copy of Balloon Fight sealed. Yeah. Golf is one of two copies sealed. And Gumshoe. And Gumshoe yeah. as well. So it's interesting because a lot of these articles, I've seen this one floating around a lot, I've been tagged in it and stuff. A lot of it is just like, man spends, you know, a million million dollars on retro games. We've got to understand he's buying games which have got intact stickers on them, Nintendo seal quality stickers on them, which are sealed and, you know, he's going for the 100% mint. But at the same time, Ravi did put it very kindly. He is a bit of a berk. I I just think it's lazy journalism, you know what I mean? They've wrote a couple of articles about this guy spending money on stuff. I'm sure there's people that have spent more on it on really rare arcade cabinets or something like this. And then they've just got a few... I like that they've got quotes from Metal Jesus and a few other people in there. But it just seems like, you know, this guy's going to try and do this to also build up his rep and probably sell them for more. What I I find interesting is... It's very American. All these... um, all these posts and, you know, the quotes from him as well, they're dodging actual what has he bought and how much has he bought mm, each individual yeah. one for. Because in one of the articles I've got here, it says, what does it say? It says, and I, uh, this is an actual quote as well, let me just find it. Well, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a very... That's it. The yeah. process cost him $1.02 The process. And his team... Yeah, because I mean, apparently this is a group. It's three yeah. guys, and they're called the yeah. Video Game Club. Yeah, original yeah. title. But what this reminds me of is, and there are guys in Hollywood that do this, and they have like the most ultra high definition setups. You know, th- like cinema screens in yeah, their house yeah, yeah. are as good as like the highest end cinemas. Billionaires, millionaires, and actually, the movie studios will deliver the latest movies yeah. straight. They buy them, you know, for yeah, yeah, yeah. tens of thousands of dollars to get one off screening in their house and they're delivered on secure hard disk, like a cinema, yeah, yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these are like, you know, absolute premium collectors. Yeah. And this kind of reminds me kind of the video game version of that, really. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. also guys in Japan that buy up huge Americana stuff. So they get that all sent over. And then you've got guys in America buying huge Japanese <laughs> titles and stuff yeah. like this. So, so I, I feel like touching on both of those points... This guy is part of this group. Probably all three of them are, you know, doctors or yeah. dentists or stuff. They probably own their own practices. So they've got this kind of money behind them. And like you say, they're going through this, they're going through a process where they're spending money on tracking these games down. And then, you know, it's it's not like, oh, we found them on eBay and we're buying, we're buying sealed Mario Bros. for $100,000. Because you don't genuinely see these games go for that much when they're sealed and they're, you know, 10 out of 10 quality. You see them go for a couple of thousand, but I think the, a lot of the money's been injected to the fact that they're going out there and they're looking for these games. Well, there's this collecting culture in America as well, and I don't know yeah. if it's because we don't have that much space that you know we can't afford these big or, places. Or money anymore. Yeah. Or money, yeah. yeah or money. But, <laughs> but basically, when I went to America, you know, people have huge warehouses full of this stuff. That yeah. It's really like, you know, and it would be one person and, and they could have a massive also, collection. There's also these older people who sometimes who own these toy shops and stuff in the 80s and 90s yeah, and yeah. then they closed down and they've still got this stock, you know, in in their bloody shop somewhere that they still actually own. That's what LGR did with it. Yeah, LGR like, yeah. did it. Yeah, exactly. Well, in thing. Europe, you get a lot of people saying, oh, you're hoarding, stop being a hoarder. But in America, they, 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 they're really it's, into, into having common, lots of that stuff. Thing, so, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> there's some good quotes in here as well. Different culture. John Hancock, you know, he's, he's a Seattle-based collector. He does a lot on YouTube. Oh, well, it's with yeah. Metal Jesus yeah, Rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. um, he's talking here, he's talking about the fact that, you know, 15 to 20 years after a console comes out, the people who grew up collecting it originally 
get their first real jobs, they get a bit of disposable income, and then they want to start collecting. Mm. And apparently, soon you're already seeing the value of stuff like PlayStation Two and Wii games start to rise. Oh, oh yeah, right. we use the next. <laughs> You'll get that cheap. There you go. If you want to be rich in the future, keep that copy of Wii Sports. I've uh, just recently <laughs> refurbished my games room, and, we'll, and I've got this nice, big, lovely unit, and I've put all my GameCube games in it, all my PS2 games, and all my Xbox games, original Xbox. And I was saying to my wife, isn't it hilarious that my GameCube collection is worth, you know, this much, but my PS2 collection, which is actually, you know, 150 games or something like that now. And I was like, the majority of them are worth a couple of quid. And then actually, it's interesting because it's like, actually, in about 10 years' time, will they be worth more than that? I don't know. That's yeah, a question, isn't it? Because obviously they made more of them, probably. Yeah, they did the make a lot more of them. Also, also interest with the system. So if you think, like, you know, you're collecting something really rare, the Atari Jaguar or whatever, yeah. like... Are people really going to buy that stuff in the future? Like, yeah. who knows? You know, is there going to be a new generation that mm. go, oh, I want Jaguar games? Like, no one knows. You That's know? the thing. I guess when the people that care about it have either got it or not interested yeah. in it anymore, yeah. will the next generation that are coming through? Yeah, I guess it's when you hit and peak I, time. I, I, gotta I, I do agree because if yeah. you go back 15 years, we were all looking at Mega Drive games and SNES games and finding them for a pound or two. Yeah. I'm currently finding PS2 games and Wii games mm. for a pound or two. So, yeah, when when's that going to happen? But, this yeah. guy'd be good if he spent all his money. It's worth like twenty quid, and like, yeah, oh, yeah, like, like funny. Ha, has has he bought it at peak? And that's yeah. kind of the question you can never never answer. Is that is it? why I, you I, never know. I don't buy games for investment; just buy them for fun. That's yeah, yeah. So if you want to read about that and everything else we've talked about in this week's show, you don't have to Google them. We put it all in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our chat with Sean McClure, I just want to mention something really worthwhile that I think is actually going to be happening this weekend. It's around now, but we'll put a link in our show notes as well, and you can check out the exact date. Now, this is a really good charity event called Small Heroes. Now, the idea behind this is to show positive ways that gaming can affect those passionate about the people who need it most. We talked about the addiction before. This is the opposite side of it. This is people who are playing games to help out the most vulnerable people in our society, talking about kids with cancer. Now, obviously, they struggle with life, you know, a lot of problems going on. But this group of guys, they're doing speed running challenges, casual let's plays as well. There's going to be podcasts and a lot of big streamers from Norway, Sweden and France are going to be getting together, doing three days of live streams and getting donations from viewers worldwide that will go towards buying stuff like Nintendo Switches for these kids to keep them entertained in hospital. Yeah, you know, when you're in a hospital, the atmosphere is absolutely, totally clinical and, you know... you need some form of escapism and fun for the kids. So if you guys can come and help support this group, it's a really, really worthy cause. That's going to be hosting on Twitch on our Crimson Cassius. We actually met in Bjorn uh, when we were over at Retro Sport Messen. Yeah. You know, a really nice guy. And uh, this event's called Small Hero. So if you want to find out more about that, he'll send me a link over before the show goes out. And I'll put it in our show notes at theretrohour.com. And right now, let's get some stories about legendary companies like Atari, Infograms, Activision and Gremlin with this week's guest, Sean McClure. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is our pleasure to welcome on this week's very special guest. Welcome to the Retro Hour, Sean McClure. Hello there. How are you doing, Sean? I'm very good, thank you. <laughs> now, uh, I can't wait to get some stories about these amazing games and companies that you work for, uh, companies like Gremlin, obviously Atari as well, that we need to talk about soon. But I mean, kind of going back to day one, I mean, do you remember what kind of first got you into video games when you first saw them? Um, yeah, I mean, I used to um, design board games. Um, originally, and um, I, I didn't know games like, uh, you know, like desktop gaming with little miniatures existed. Um, so I started off by just designing my own rules for little toy soldiers and that sort of thing. Right. 
Um, and uh, the only people I could test them on were my brothers and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, uh, they were so convoluted, these rules, that they just lost interest straight away. Um, and then um, a friend of mine got um, ZX81. And then I saw the potential of just hiding all the rules in the background, you know, letting the computer do all the calculations and just making a game, really. Um, and that really got me into it, just going to his house every day and just playing on his computer, really. And you really had to use your imagination on the ZX81 as well, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, the graphics were pretty uh, pitiful, you know. Um, there was quite a lot of text in the games as well, just because the screen resolutions were so small. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a good grounding, I think, though. Well, obviously, around that time, the arcades were really taking off as well. I mean, were you much of an arcade-goer, and were there any titles that you like ran to the minute you went in the arcade? Uh, there wasn't really an arcade in Mexico where I grew up, um, but uh, my dad my dad just picked me up at weekends because my mum and dad got divorced, and uh, we'd end up in the pub um, on a, like a Saturday afternoon or something, and he'd stick me and my brother in the corner with a lemonade and some crisps, you know. Um, and, um, you know, at some point we saw things like Space Invaders appear. So uh, I think that's probably the first game, I, a proper arcade game I played, just because it was in the pubs around about the time, just about then, you know. And Space Invaders, I mean, it was a real atmospheric game as well, wasn't it, when it just sped up and then you got that kind of heartbeat sound effect as well. That must have been quite, you know, dramatic, I guess, as a kid seeing that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I found out later that it, um, it, it sped up just because the, the graphics on the screen got less and less and less. The mm. processor was so poor, it, it wasn't a design feature, it just sped up because of that, which is quite interesting. But uh, yeah, it was quite, yeah, it was quite cool to play. Well, what was the first system that you got at home yourself? Um, it wasn't really a system. It was one of those um, Binatone, um, I think they called them, a, just called them a TV game, you know, the... Like a Pong thing, was it? Yeah, you, you had 19 different versions of Pong, basically. Um, different variations, you know, and that was the, the first thing we ever got. Um, I was always one year behind everybody else, so I, I eventually got a ZX81 myself when everybody had moved on to the spectrums, and then I got a spectrum when everybody had moved on to other things, you know, so. And were you into art and drawing as a kid? Yeah, I originally wanted to be um, an illustrator, just a book illustrator. Um, so I spent most of my time just drawing pictures and, you know, copying pictures out of Dungeons and Dragons manuals and that sort of thing, mostly. Um, the fighting fantasy books as well. Hmm. Uh, so that was my first ever ambition, just to do that, really. Well, how did you get started doing graphics on a computer then? What techniques were you using? And was that on the spectrum when you started doing them, really? Um, it was, yeah. What happened was um, there was three of us that were friends, and I was the youngest one, so I was like the, the junior member, you know. And uh, the, the guy that got the ZX81 before I did is a guy called Ian Smith, um, and he had an older friend called Andrew, and they were always, because they were neighbours and I lived you know, a bit further away, they were always hatching projects on the computer, and I... I was never really involved, you know, I tried to be, but I was like the junior member of the gang, you know. Mm. Um, and then, fortunately, I think they tried to, they did a few games in basic and it, it didn't really work, you know, they didn't really get anywhere with them and they realised that they needed to learn machine code. Um, but um, Andrew discovered girls and beer around about this time. <laughs> and Distraction. So he, yeah, so he, he, he sort of dropped out more. He, he sort of, you know, did teenager things. Um and so, uh, and because I could draw better than Ian, basically, he sort of said, hey, guess what? You're part of the gang now and you can do the graphics instead of Andrew, you know. I was like, all oh, right, so by default, really. Um, and, um, I mean, we'd been sort of typing in games from um, Sinclair programs and that sort of thing for years, you know, and that's how we learned how to, uh, how to code in, basically, like a lot of people. Um, the, the listings that you had were always faulty, so you had to correct them, and that's how you learned how to debug and code yourself. Yeah, 
Um, and so we we knew how to do things like um, they were called user-defined uh, user graphics, where you could um, type in the binary codes, you know, the, the values, and make your own graphics. Um, I think you had about 26 characters or something like that on the spectrum. Um, so what we did was uh, when Ian, Ian was learning how to code um, in Z8TA, and I didn't have any um, art package, so what I literally had to do was um, I got some graph paper, redrew the squares into 8 by 8 um, sketched a picture, um, coloured all the squares in, and this is a really good way to actually get around the uh, attribute clash as well, because mm. you can plan it really well. But then I had to work out the square, you know, the values for each row, and wrote them into little lines and gave them to Ian, and he typed them in manually, and that's how we did the first graphics. Uh, but I eventually got hold of a thing called uh, Melbourne Draw, uh, which I found out later was the, you know, most people in the industry sort of use that. It was very difficult to learn, but it was very, very good. Um, so, yeah, so that's how I started, really. Um, the, the first game we did was... Um, Ian was really, really into adventure games, um, and things like sprites were too... You know, they were a bit too advanced for him, I think. Um, so uh, it, we basically designed um, a game called Excalibur Sword of Kings, uh, which became it, it got published by um, Alternative in the end. Uh, but that's how I got into it. That's how uh, my career started, basically. And how old were you when that game got published then? Uh, I was quite young. Um, I think I was about 17, something like that. Yeah. I mean, do you remember seeing that in the shops for the first time? That must have been quite a buzz. Yeah. Um, we didn't even get um, a free copy oh, well. of Alternative, <laughs> you know. And I remember... Um, it was a bit of a, an anticlimax, really, because I went along to uh, Doncaster, which was the nearest big place, big town, and we found a copy, and uh, we bought one each, me and Ian. And I brought it back, and, I, you know, I've been telling my parents that I got a game. I don't, I don't think they believed me, to be quite honest. I don't think they really knew what a computer game was. Um, and they, they certainly weren't interested, you know, but I, I bought it and I showed them, and they were like, oh, yeah, right, wow. You know, I was like, no, no, it's... I've done it and stuff. But my name wasn't on the cover, so I had to get the Spectrum downstairs, plug it into the TV set and loaded it up. And, and uh, so I could, they could see my name on the credits on the first screen, on the loading screen. Uh, but you can imagine, I mean, they, they didn't even know what a computer game was. They certainly didn't know what an adventure game was. They just sat there and just went, right, what's it do then? And it's, <laughs> well, you're typing words. And I went, all right, then, well, let's put telly back on now then, Sean, you know. <laughs> So did your parents ever like kind of understand what you were doing then or was it kind of did they want you to do something else or did they kind of support you in the end then when they realized it was like a passion? No, they, they I mean um it was um basically if you spent all your time in the bedroom they were trying to get you to play outside all the time you know I should be playing out with the other kids yeah. you know that sort of thing they and I kept saying, I'm not playing, I'm working, you know, I am actually working. And they didn't believe me. They didn't know you could work on a computer. It was just something to make games on, you know, play games on. Um, and, um, I mean, I think when it really hit home was when um, I started to uh, freelance. Um, I sent a load of demo tapes out and stuff, um, Spectrum cassettes, um, to a lot of people. And um, there was a couple of companies, two or three companies, uh, D&H Games, they made a lot of football games. Hmm. Um, they were a big one. And um, I sent them a demo, and um, they, they said, right, so how much do you charge then? And I said something like... <laughs> um, £10 for a black and white screen and £20 for a colour screen or something like that and uh, they replied with well it's it's a bit too cheap actually you know you should be charging about 30 quid for a colour screen we don't do black and white but it's 30 quid for a colour screen you know very honest of them yeah I thought it was really nice you know and they um, they sent me um, I don't I think they actually sent me cash they sent me 60 quid in cash 
um, in an envelope and said, can you do these two screens for us? So I came in from school. Um, it was at a sixth form college, I think, actually, at the time. And uh, I opened this envelope and money fell out. And, uh, you know, they were amazed. You know, I said, well, I told you I've been working. You know, I've been doing this stuff. And they just didn't realise until they saw money actually fall out of an envelope one day, you know. Well, was Wise Owl Software your first full-time graphics job? Yeah, um, I saw this article about this uh, computer firm in a place called WAF, um, which was about sort of three miles away. Um, and um, I just got the number from Director of Inquiries and um, gave them a call and they said, can you come through and you know bring some stuff with you? Um, so I, I got the afternoon of school. <laughs> I just didn't go back because I came home at lunchtime and got the letter. Um uh, with the details on, you know. Anyway, long story short, so I went through straight away, I got the next bus through, um, and uh, showed them some stuff, and they basically offered me a job um, on the spot. And what was it like to work there, then? It was very small, they weren't very good, to be honest, hmm. um, and I wasn't very good. Um, and, I mean, I, I was good at drawing still screens, but I, I, I couldn't animate or anything like that. Um, but neither could they, it turned out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was only a small firm, there was about sort of, ten people working there. But uh, we typically got a lot of ocean conversions to do. But uh, so I got my name on quite a few big ocean titles, but for really obscure machines like the Thompson machine, which is a French machine. Uh, it's very similar to a Sam Coupe, I think, in terms of like the design, you know, the screen layouts and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, it was interesting. Um, I clashed with the um, head of art quite heavily at the time. We were sort of friends, but he basically couldn't draw, which didn't really help. He was a uh, his background was as a graphic designer. Um, so everything was in isometric. Everything had to be, you know, 45 degree lines. Um, he couldn't draw people or anything like that. Hmm. Um, and all his colours were, because, you know, his, his, his heyday was in the 70s and late 60s, so everything was purple and these psychedelic colour schemes, you know, and it just looked horrible. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we, we, we clashed quite a bit. But it, it was a good grounding, because I'd never done things like um, making map blocks and putting them together, you know, just laying out graphics it was my first try at um, animation like i said you know so and were you doing kind of conversions for gremlin as well when you were at wardell we did in a well we did an original game we did gary Lineker's super skills for yeah. them which i think they knew our sort of limitations and they just assumed we could do it because it was a, a joystick waggler you know they're not all that complicated but uh, the problem was again we couldn't animate um um even the two there was two other artists that worked there uh there was um bob who was the head of our bob uh, bob lee's um, and uh, Graham Durnham, I think his name was, and he he certainly wasn't an artist. I think they just he was a friend, or they just stuck him on a computer one day, you know. But I mean, we tried all sorts. So, uh, Bob went out and got a book on animation, and it had on every page it had a different frame of someone walking, so you could flick it and see the guy walking. And we traced that, and we used that for everything. And all the um, Edvard, um, what's the name of the guy now? Uh, it was a French guy that did lots of um, uh, books about animation. It was lo- lots of um, frames of photographs. Right. Mo- Moybridge, I think his name was, Edvard Moybridge. Um, and we used that a lot. But it was, you know, it was never anything useful like someone on monkey bars. It was always um, a fat woman walking up a ladder holding a vase, you know, never anything useful. So, so we struggled a little bit. But that was quite an interesting game as well, because, I mean, you know, from the title, you'd assume it would be just a straight footballing game, but it, it had lots of different stages, didn't it? And they had to do lots of different activities. Yeah, I think they just tried to um, pad it out, to be honest. A lot of it was the same sort of game, you know. Um, I mean, we, we clashed a lot on that because of the art style. Um, there's a little jug in the bottom corner that's supposed to be um, some sort of sports drink, and that, that's your basically your um, energy bar, hmm. and it goes down. But if you look at the... I'm thinking of the Spectrum one in particular... It's drawn like um, uh, like an ironware sort of 
Victorian jug like you'd chug cider out of. And I said, well, that's the wrong... T- I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, you wouldn't go to a gym and take that sort of bottle, would you? <laughs> you know what I mean? And the boss was, no, I, you know, and we, I said, you should change it. And, you know, we clashed things, about things like that all the time. He had no idea, basically. He, he, he never played games or anything like that, you know. And he said, draw a water bottle, just draw a random water bottle, you know. He didn't give it too much thought then as to whether it fit in or not? It, no, it was hard. I mean, I liked him. We, we, you know, we got on well outside of work, hmm. uh, but we just clashed constantly in work about stuff like that, you know, and it just got frustrating. And I wasn't the best artist in the world at the time myself, and I was just learning things, you know. But um, yeah, I, I was better than him, though. <laughs> but but he had the he had the technical background about how to actually make games, like do the back blocks and that sort of thing, which I didn't, you know. So we, we sort of had to work together. But yeah, it didn't really work out that well. <laughs> <laughs> well you know, today you have um, sports games, and you know, using famous sports people to charge millions for their likeness to be on there and the name. I mean, was was Gary Lineker expensive to license back then? Oh, I don't know. Um, basically, we were subcontr- um, subcontracting for Gremlin, yeah. so we had no idea about that sort of thing. I'm, I'm guessing it was not as expensive as today, but yeah, it probably cost them quite a bit. They, I mean, I think they had two or three different Gremlin ge- um, Gremlinica games, didn't they? So. Yeah, it must have done the bit to sell them, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I automatically assumed, because it had his name on it, it would just go to number one, and of course it just bombed, because it was crap. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you actually went to work for Gremlin after that then, did you? No, not really. What happened was it was many, many, many years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked for a company called Imagitech and they got bought out by Gremlin. Yeah, so they, they basically, you know, I, I just became part of Gremlin because of that buyout. I'd been around a little bit. I went to, after Wiseall, I went to a place called Enigma Variations. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's another Yorkshire firm, but it was in North Yorkshire. And it was all budget games. It was all uh, things like Postman Part and that sort of thing. That was interesting. It got me. It, it taught me how to work very fast and how to use libraries and that sort of thing, you know. So I stayed there for about six months, but it was a killer because you had to get a game out every month wow. on all formats. So you, you just lived in the office, you know, literally. You lived under your desk most of the time. You know, you go shopping at petrol stations and that sort of thing at midnight, you know, food. Um, and um, I, I moved to London. I had a girlfriend um, down there, and it was a bit of a long-distance relationship, but uh, I just moved down there. I just wanted to move back up to Yorkshire again, so um, at, at the time, Imagitech, I'd heard of Imagitech, and uh, just got a job there, basically. I just, I just applied and got a job there. Uh, I mean, they already had about uh, 10 artists there, so I was just sort of helping out on games like um, Ragnarok, which is basically Viking chess, believe it or not. They were just finishing off a game called Humans, so I did a tiny bit on that, not a lot. I can't remember what I really did. I think I did the little clock, you know, next to the timer on the bar at the bottom, um, and I did a, a few uh, other conversions of it as well, yeah, with the conversions, but I didn't really do a lot on that game. Yeah, because that was like a puzzle game, wasn't it, I remember? It was a bit like Lemmings, yeah. a, li- a little bit, yeah, where you just like click on different characters and give them like temporary powers, you know. Was it called Dino Dudes as well, wasn't it? It had a couple of different names. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think that was for the arcade, I think, um, you know, to appeal to the American market, I think. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that was an Atari decision, I think, so. Well, when Gremlin bought them out then, did you go to work for Gremlin's office in, in Sheffield then, was it? No, what had happened was um, they'd, they were going to float on the stock market. Hmm. This is my understanding of it, so I could be wrong. Um, and uh, at the time, Imagitech wasn't doing too well. I think they were floundering, basically. Um, and uh, when you float on the stock market, your price is apparently based on the number of, it's like a formula, the number of offices you've got, the number of staff, um, turnover, this sort of thing, you know. And so they went on a bit of a buying spree before knowing that they'd get some money in when they floated. So they bought um, Imagitech, and we were going to be the, 
the specialist conversion house for them, basically. Um, and they bought DMA design as well at the same time. So now I was head of art by now at um, Imagitech, and they didn't have an head of art in Gremlin. It wasn't a role they had. So it was a bit awkward, you know, because I was on this sort of quite a big wage and stuff, technically a manager. And I could see, I mean, I, didn't, I understood I was fine about it, uh, but I was still head of art on a few projects. So we had to sort of wind them down and then, you know, I just reverted back to artist. Uh, but I stayed in the, um, we were actually based in Dewsbury, our office. So uh, there was uh, the Sheffield office in Carver Street and then there was um, DMA design up in Dundee. Um, so, yeah, I was basically just uh, just at the um, uh, Dewsbury office. And what was Gremlin like to work for then? I mean, I, from what I've read about them and, you know, heard from other people, it always sounded like a, a, a good company to work for, kind of give you a lot of freedom to do what you wanted to do. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what happened really. Uh, I mean, uh, they seemed okay, but uh, after a while, the the work was running out, um, and we were all a bit confused about it. And there were sort of various conspiracy theories that they were just trying to bore us to resign. Um, I think they, they decided to let us have a bit of a head of steam and say, well, look, you know, if you've got any games you want to do, do a proposal. You know, you can do you can work on like a demo in the office. And a few people got really enthused by it and did it, and it just, you know it, it just petered out. You know, they weren't really interested, I don't think. But, um, yeah, we, we, we sort of felt a lot of the time. I think they did try to integrate us, but we always felt like the poor cousin, you know. We, yeah. we always felt like we were getting all the, all the crappy jobs because we were a conversion house. Um, and uh, there was a time, I wouldn't say conflict, but, um, you know, there, there was a bit of um, uh, abrasiveness from both sides, I think, you know, because it was weird suddenly being brought out by a firm and you get people above you that you didn't have before, you know. They did try to, I mean, they had little, like, socials for us, you know, where sent some managers to get drunk with us and that sort of thing, but it always seemed a bit sort of artificial, and they'd always say a few snidey things here and there, you know, which just pissed everybody off, you know. This is my take on it. I mean, I could be wrong, <laughs> you know. Yet to be there at the time, I guess, you know. I, th- I think it got a bit weird as well, because um, just round about this time, Atari were looking to, well, it wasn't even Atari, it was um, Infograms. Yeah. They were looking to... Because um, it turns out that the stock market uh, in France was a lot more friendly to computer games than in England, so uh, they got a bigger share price uh, themselves, and they were on their lookout to buy people out. I think they bought Ocean at the same time, didn't they? Mm. Um, but they bought Gremlin, and it, it just got—you know—we had some strange people walking around all the time, people that I recognised from Ocean and stuff like that, and you know, I suspected something was going to happen, you know, so uh, it didn't really help, so we had all that uncertainty going on, you know. It always seemed like, you know, that happened quite a bit in the, especially the late 80s and 90s, you know, these just companies buying out other companies like every few months and the whole industry just kind of <laughs> sounded a bit confused around that time, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I could never figure it out because you'd yeah. buy them out and then close them. And, and why? Why buy them then? Was it just to get rid of competition? You know, I could never figure it out. Um, you're not using any of their IPs or anything like that. So, you know, I mean, I'm not a finance guy. I'm sure there was some good reason behind it. But, yeah, it was a confusing time, yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right there. It does seem odd that, you know, they go to all this effort of buying them out, but now you don't, you don't see, like, Ocean or Gremlin or Cygnosis, these massive companies from the past. The names just kind of vanish when they get bought. Yeah, and plus, I mean, they changed, you know, they wanted a bit of credibility, so they changed the name to Atari as well. Yeah. Um, and then, so they didn't. They even got rid of themselves in a way, didn't they? <laughs> I mean, technically, you worked for Atari then, briefly. It was about two months. Hmm. So, yeah, it was dead funny because I think I'd worked for, in the space of three or four months, I'd worked for like four, three or four different companies and I'd not even changed my desk, you know. <laughs> so is this after the Tremils had Atari then, is it? Yeah, they just yeah. basically bought the name, um, you know, because they wanted, it's, it's a, you know, obviously, in, uh, which I think they're trying to sell themselves in America. 
and everybody knows Atari, uh, but it had nothing to do with the original regime. It was just they literally just bought the you know the name. What were some of your highlights that you remember from your time at Gremlin then? Well, I worked on um, Actual Soccer, uh, the club edition version, and I worked on all the Premier Manager versions as well, the console ones. Yeah, there's quite a bit going on in terms of... Uh, I worked on Reloaded as well, but it was, again, that was conversion more than anything. In, yeah. fact, in fact, all of them were, except for the Premier Manager, that, that was an original title. Uh, but it was using the Actual Soccer engine just to do the highlights, you know. From an artist's point of view, um, you basically just get told... You know, it's more a case of, it's, it's not all that interesting. Once you get past Amiga, it's just a matter of, it's just pixel art, but you get more banks of colour. So when I, when I mean banks of colour, what I mean is, um, let's say you've got 256 colours in a palette. We normally split them into banks of 16, so you get the, the transparent at zero, and the next 15, that's, that's a bank of one colour. Um, so, you know, you get different amounts depending on which machine you're working on, really. So um, that's all you needed to know, really. Um, because we weren't in, you know, there wasn't any 3D about, there was, but we didn't really use it much. It was more, we used it only really to draw over if we were rotating anything about. And what tools were you using then? Were you on like D-Paint, obviously, on the Amiga? What about when you're doing stuff on like Snares and Mega Drive? Yeah, well, ST, on ST to start with, I mean, um, everybody had like an ST and an Amiga on the desk. Um, and um, it was Art Studio on an ST and it was D-Paint and D-Paint Anim um, on uh, Amigas. After a while, obviously, I mean, we just stuck with that, really, all the way up to Photoshop. And would you do uh, Super Nintendo and stuff on it as well? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was, it was still pixel art. Um, the, the, tr- the trouble with um, machines with low colour, you know, when it's not true colour, is you've got to be incredibly controlling about where you put the pixels. You've got to sort of, um, you, you draw things almost like, um, you know, when you see uh, a map and they put those lines around profiles on hills yeah. to show height and that sort of thing, that's pretty much how you draw in pixel art. Uh, you have to be incredibly controlling about things so everything can look really neat. And then True Colour came around the corner and ruined it all. We all had to learn again, you know, because everything, <laughs> everything had to look the exact opposite, you know, because it looked pixelated otherwise, you know, so it took, a, it took a long time for everyone to learn, you know. And did you have a preference for, like, the kind of games that you worked on? Like, did you prefer doing platformers or puzzle games? Did you have, like, any kind of preference? Um, so long as it had lots of rust, you know, I'm a typical artist, anything with rusty metal in it and blood. Mm. In terms of games, um, I didn't. It's funny enough the, the the games I enjoy playing, I never get a chance to work on one myself, and it's always um, like real time uh, strategy games. You know things like um, uh, you know the original June two thousand and stuff like that, and um, Command and Conquer, or even turn based games. I mean, those are the games I really enjoy playing. Um, but uh, yeah, I never got a chance to work on any of those. Did you do um, James Pond 2 Robocod on the SNES? Was that one of your... Yes, projects? I did, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, that was a really, like, uh, fluffy and colourful game, wasn't it? You know, it's um, it had a lot of atmosphere as well, but, yeah, that couldn't be further from, like, a strategy game, could it? <laughs> oh, I know, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of proud of that because yeah. it, uh, in terms of it being... Um, not the game itself as such, but just fitting so much into it, because, again, you've got limited amount of memory. Um, I think we have to fit everything into... Um, you know what a character is, right? It's... Um, yeah connect by a block so um, I think we have 256 characters to fit in all the animations and of course he runs around in a full circle doesn't he and you know um, and it was an absolute nightmare to to work out um, I had to basically do lots of lots of cheating where I offset characters and I had to give the programmers I just sat down for three weeks and drew the graphics and then I just gave the programmer this poor guy uh, Peter Hennig who actually worked on the Spectrum um, years before um, I just gave him all these offset charts and he went, what the hell is this? I said, it's the only way I can get them in, honestly. It's just the only way. And um, it took him about a week to put them all in. And it worked all right. I mean, I was quite proud we got them all in there because we were talking about just really 
knackering up the layers, you know, the, the, the level, sorry, you know, just to get the game into the memory. But in the end, we managed to fit it all in. So, yeah. So, I mean, for a platformer, there was a lot in that game, I remember. Even, like, you know, the, the main character himself, he, he could get into, um, like, you know, planes and cars. And, you know, there's a load of different graphics in that game. So it was a lot to pack in, I guess. Yeah, and again, it's, you know, more from a technical achievement. I mean, I was so proud of getting it all in, you know, but I had to really, really work to it, you know. Um, I mean, I think he had, obviously, he's, uh, he's, he's head animates. 13 hours is... It gets upset, um, upset all the time and moved around and, you know, he's got about two two facial animations, I think, instead of like 16 or something like that, you know. So, yeah, a bit of a nightmare. Did you ever kind of get told, like, specifically how much memory space you had for the graphics and did you have to stick to it? Because I guess, obviously, you know, a floppy disk or a cartridge, you've got a finite amount, amount of space on them. Um, yeah, if it's not anything... Basically, the handheld machines, uh, it was based around um, the number of characters you had on the screen um, at any one point or, you know, for that, for that um, level, usually. Um, so what you need to do is you fit all the animations into, uh, like, one part of that character set and the rest were, like, level graphics or special effects, you know, with explosions, that sort of thing. So that was a lot easier in a lot of ways because you knew exactly where you stood. You had a certain square on screen you had to fill and that was it. When it came to... Because it didn't matter what you drew on them, it, it took up the same amount of memory, you know, even if it was a blank screen, right? So that was fine. When it came to consoles and that sort of thing, typically you would just draw things and then right at the end, the programmers would come over and say, uh, actually, could you cut these down by a few frames? You know, we've <laughs> got a few problems here. Um, so, yeah, towards the end, that's where people, you know, you get the memory escapes and that sort of thing and everyone would be panicking. I mean, after the SNES and the Mega Drive, I mean, came the next generation of consoles and that really started with the Atari Jaguar. That was an early fifth generation system. You worked on the Jaguar. You did a few titles on it. What did you think of it as a system? Um, I think the, the way they marketed it was completely wrong. Um, and I've been on record as saying this, and I've got nothing against, um, uh, what's, what's his name, the Llama guy, Jeff Minter. Um, but if you're going to market a machine as a next-gen machine, you don't get Jeff Minter involved to do the games, do you? Um, I mean, he's, he's claimed to... I mean, it's, I've met him, he's a nice guy. No problem with him at all on a personal level, but... He's basically, uh, his claim to fame is um, rejigging old arcade games and just changing the graphics and making them look different. You know, it's like things like Defender and that sort of thing. You know, it's not the sort of person you want to uh, publicise a next-gen game. I think and people, I think that confuses a lot of people. You know, it's like, well, great, but, you know, Tempest, I mean, it's a great game, but, you know, why are you doing an old arcade game? You know what I mean? It's should be doing something different, you know. And uh, later on, people picked up on it. So we had things like um, Predator and yeah, Alien vs. Predator and that sort of thing as well. So, yeah, I, th- I think it was marketed all wrong. You know, they should have just got someone really, really cutting edge like uh, Westwood maybe to do a few standout games for them, you know. You're right, because when that Alien Predator game came along, it was, you know, that really showed off the power of the hardware, didn't it? Which yeah. I don't think a lot of people really tapped into all that often. Well, the games, I mean, um, I mean, even in Magitex, I mean, I was working freelance at the time. I wasn't actually in the office a lot of the time. I was working, um, long story, I'd moved back to Watford by now. Um, and um, uh, so I was getting these instructions. But, um, I mean, they didn't really tell me what they, I didn't even know it was on the Jaguar. I was treating it exactly the same as a normal machine, you know, like a SNES or something like that. Um, and I think you can tell in a lot of ways, you know, because it's just, it, it still looks old gen. You know, a lot of the games that were coming out of Magitech. Um, we were specialists at uh, converting stuff 
you know, and again, what they needed was some cutting-edge titles, you know. So I think we were, even Imagitech was the wrong team to approach. I don't know if we were cheap or not, but <laughs> I'm guessing we were just cheap, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a sh- it's a shame, really. You know, they, they had a lot of potential for that machine, but, you know, it, I think it excited the programmers more than the artists, though, again, because they get excited about CPU speeds and that sort of thing, don't they, so... I mean, you, you did the graphics for the jackpot of the um, arcade blaster Raiden, didn't you? And that w- that was a great arcade game, and yeah. a, that conversion was fantastic. Probably the best on the home system. But again, I mean, it was like that was a late '80s shoot 'em up game. It didn't really push that 64-bit hardware, I guess. Yeah, again, yeah, it's another old arcade game, isn't it? You yeah. know, and you should be, you know, you should be getting people like um, uh, what's it called uh, the giant, the guy that did Doom, you know, um, yeah, American McGee, yeah. people like that to, involved with it, you know, and not those. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did actually the conversion of Tempest 2000 to the PC, didn't you? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, what was it like working on that game? Later on in life, there was a program called Debabalizer which came along, and I wish to God it had existed back then because all I had to do really was um, we had a, um, a 2006 colour palette, and they gave me like a, a directory full of graphics from whichever machine it came from originally, and I had to get them all into one manually in, in deep paint i had to get them all into one palette you know one shared palette basically um um this program called debabalizer would do it for you now you just get the 10 screens and you know click on make palette and it would just create a palette for you hmm. but uh, i had to do it all manually back then so that's that's all i did really i just touched things up so it was i mean it, i know it wasn't groundbreaking in terms of gameplay but it was a quite a fun game to play i thought that version of tempest yeah, I mean, it played all right, you know. I mean, all the games played okay, but again, they weren't really next-gen, you know. Yeah. Bit of a shame, but, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you don't get a lot of choice over things. You just get, um, it's like working in any office, really. You just get thrown something, and you've got to make the best of it, you know, so. Well, around that time after the Jaguar, stuff like the Saturn and the PlayStation came along, and it seemed like the whole industry, you really had to do 3D games at that point. That's what everyone wanted. I mean, did that, how did that change affect you then when it all kind of went to 3D? Well, change um i mean um imagitech i think we had one copy of deep paint um deep paint sorry uh, 3ds max mm. uh, so we only had one copy of uh, 3ds max and we weren't encouraged to use it the machines that we had at the time as well were very very slow um so i think only one person really bothered with it really and we only really used it like i said if in the old days if you're doing a game um where let's say you've got a, a speedboat flying you know you you're behind the speedboat and it turns. It's quite hard to animate by hand, so we'd, you know, render it, then draw over it. It'd get relegated to little jobs like that, you know. Um, and, of course, you know, by now, um, it's been like two or three years and other people were doing 3D games all the time, you know, so we were quite behind the, the curve on it really badly. It didn't help that um, we had a big fallout with a lot of staff there um, at um, Imagitech, and a lot of them went off to Ocean. And so... Uh, Martin Hulley, the boss, rather than just advertising and getting some people in, it, it sort of, I didn't know if he did it on the cheap on purpose or if it was just, I don't know. But he went along to one of these um, art shows, you know, end-of-year degree show things, and um, he basically eyed about eight people that were straight from college, um, or university, rather. So, I mean, they were decent artists, but, I mean, they didn't even know what a pilot was. So, you know, they never used an art program in their lives. And suddenly I'm, I'm training them up. <laughs> you know, but it was sort of good in a way because we were just getting old of um, it was just after the Gremlin buyout as well so suddenly we had money for Max and could actually afford the licenses for it you know um, so we all got a copy of Max and we all had to um, basically learn it um, before then we were working on a game that never got published 
called Darknet, and we were using some um, um, silicon graphics machines. Yeah. But we only had three of those, and uh, there were... Well, I mean, you can imagine we'd not even used Macs all that much, and suddenly we're using silicon graphics machines, which were a lot more expensive, but I don't know if we really needed them or not, you know. <laughs> they looked cool, though, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. It was funny because... Um, well, shall I tell you the story? Yeah. Um, right, okay. So I'm going to use the word allegedly quite a lot, right? Right. So... <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so we got, we put the first one in the meeting room and, coffee, you know, it's really expensive. We're on the second floor in this old Victorian building. We put a CD in one time. There's me and the boss, Martin, and a couple of other guys trying to sort it out, trying to just, just get it to work, you know. And uh, we pressed eject on the little CD drive thing, put the CD in, closed it, and it made this horrible noise. It was like like a grinding noise. And then we realised it wasn't um, a CD we'd put in. We'd put in one of the coasters oh, by no accident. Way. <laughs> <laughs> we were like, uh-oh. Because those machines weren't cheap, were they? They were very, very expensive. Yeah. Um, and the thing about it is you're not even allowed to take them to pieces, you know, because they've got all these um, checks. You know, if you if you break it and try to repair it yourself, the, the warrant is knacked, you know. But weirdly, right, that night... Some drunken guy, after we walking past, threw a brick just at that one window, right? And out of all the things it could have hit in the room, it hit that machine. Wow. Um, complete coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> Funny what happens after dark, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's weird how all the glasses on the outside. But... <laughs> well, I mean, you know, looking at those games that you worked on then, I mean, you know, you did work on an incredible range of games. I mean... Any that kind of stick out in your mind as like a, a favourite that you've had a hand in? Um, it's mainly, yeah, I think so, yeah. It's mainly um, Spectrum games, I guess. Yeah. There was um, Double Dragon 3, and that was quite a good game. I mean, it was an arcade conversion. But the Rosetta Stone, wasn't it, number three? That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was, I mean, we had it easier than the other two versions because it was a multi-load. It was a 128 game, I think. Oh, wait a minute, no, you could play it on 48, but it was multi-load. Or you could load it in one go in one to eight. That was right, yeah. Mm. So... You know, we had a lot. We didn't have to worry too much about the memory, especially on the graphics. So I didn't really have to mess about so much with using blocks. I could just literally just draw the backgrounds as one solid thing, and uh, you know, we could just put those in without having to cut them down and stuff like that. Um, but it was good because um, the programmer Tom Prosser got me involved with the game itself. You know, in terms of like the game design and um, if, if uh, the AI needed to be changed, you know, he was quite open about me just playing it and suggesting things. Whereas I mean, it's almost unheard of normally you get... Um, I mean, people nowadays, I don't know how it works nowadays, but back then if you were an artist and you went up to someone and said, oh, I think this could be changed, they'd tell you to, you know, piss off, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, so that was quite refreshing, really, you know. Well, you know, today, obviously, retro's suddenly come back. Um, yeah. Have you kind of been shocked at the interest again in retro gaming over the last few years? I think it's the same as... Um, it's not exactly nostalgia, I think, uh, although it's connected, I think. But it's it's like the rise of board games again. Um, I think, I mean, I love modern games, you know, I think they, they look brilliant, but I think that's the problem. I think they all look so brilliant now that people want a bit of a change. And I think with a lot of the stories now, you, be, you basically, you know, it's a story, isn't it? a story arc, you know, and you've got to be really into it for months. And, you know, uh, whereas I think the retro games, it's just something you can pick up and just play for 20 minutes, you know, and not really... You don't have to buy into the entire backstory or anything like that, do you? Because there isn't one, really. Yeah, and a lot of modern games, like the, the tutorial or the training mode's 20 minutes long anyway, isn't it? <laughs> I hate them, yeah. Um, it's one of the reasons I... I tried to play a few um, games on Facebook. I hate the way that you get a, a medal for everything, literally. It's, mm. 
I think I played uh, Dungeon Master, or dun- dun- is it Dungeon Keeper? Dungeon Keeper. It makes you play the tutorial, and it's like, click on here to make something, and then there's a big arrow, and you click on it, and you get a fanfare and a medal saying you clicked on something, you know. <laughs> Almost patronising, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And it's 20 minutes later, you've, you, you haven't even started making anything yet, and I just want to play, and, and you know, check the tutorial if I need to, but, but it forces you, and it's, yeah, brilliant, you've moved your mouse again, you know, and it's, oh, man, you know. <laughs> I think that's why probably a lot of people when they go back to playing the retro games again they suddenly think they're really difficult to play because you know you, there's none that handheld in back then yeah I, I think I mean I could see the, the tide changing a little bit because I mean I had producers that um, especially I, I worked at a place called RuneCraft as well um, and uh, we were doing a game Game Boy Advance game and we kept being told that uh, kids can't play games you know it's they're too stupid you've got to make it really easy for them and put arrows everywhere and and their hands are too small to use all the buttons on the shoulders and stuff like that, you know. And it's like, I'm sure that I'm sure you had that meeting at Nintendo. Let's make a, an handheld machine that kids can't actually use. And kids yeah. have always been the ones that play games. That, you yeah, know, and you, you point it out, but it was always people that were um, hired from outside the industry that came in as managers mm. that had all these like theories about it, you know. And it's like, no, kids can play games. It's also, you know, we we struggle, but kids can. Yeah, I was. Starting to get a bit jaded by then. So. <laughs> well, when did you leave the industry then? I'd never sort of. Well, what happened was I um, um, I moved to Glasgow and I um, got a job. Um, I won't go into details, but the, the the manager was bullying a junior member of staff, and um, I, I sort of threatened to knock his teeth out, basically. Hmm. Uh, but I stayed around. I mean, I was still doing freelance games um, for people. I was I was being contracted to do a lot of mobile phone games as well, and then the. The sort of tide changed a little bit, so um, Kickstarter started to come in all the time. You know, sorry, not all the time, but, you know, they came in. And suddenly I saw all these adverts for jobs, you know, like freelance jobs. And, you know, I put my hat into the ring, and I always get the job, you know. And then I get the contract, and um, it made no mention about money at all. And I'm, uh, it's not mentioned money at all in this, you know. And they went, what do you mean? So money. Oh, right, so we, we thought that you might want to do a game for other things other than money, you know. Like, mm-hmm. get something more out of it than just cash. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that, that thing I need to eat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then eventually, and it, it kept happening, where the, you, you go, you know, you get the, uh, well, I'd, I'd just ask them straight out. i say, look, have you got your cash? Hmm. And they went, well, no, of course we haven't. You know, we want you to work for free. Like, well, actually, that, that has happened, you know. But when, when you say you've got cash, do you mean you've actually got cash, or do you mean you're going to do a Kickstarter? And then they go, oh, well, yeah, we, we will do a future Kickstarter. So you don't have any cash now? No. Brilliant. All right, well, never mind then. <laughs> you give me a shout when you're doing the Kickstarter and you've got some money, you know. I mean, it just got so ridiculous that I was messed around all the time. Um, now, I still sort of work on games, but it's mainly for friends that are still in the industry, you know. So they've got their own little project on the side, usually. Um, and I still do that sort of thing every so often, you know. But it's always... It's not a day-to-day thing. It's just like here and there, you know. Well, you started publishing books as well. I mean, you've done... Um, is it two on the spectrum now you've done? Yeah, there's a, a, a third one as well, which is nearly yeah. complete. Um, but I got, I got sidetracked a little bit um, on a different book. Yeah, I saw... I mean, I did that... Um, I did an autobiography um, about my time in the industry, uh, which is the Rock and Roll Years book. Um, and you get, um, you get a bit of a fever, so, you know, you want to do more. And I looked on Amazon and other places, and uh, nearly all the books about Spectrum games, it was basically Ant Attack and 50 others. You know, it was always the same games. And um, I just thought well, it's a bit of a shame, isn't it? You know, because there's all these uh, games out there that 
are never mentioned, you know, even, even if they're really crap, they still need to mention, you know. Yeah. And so I just thought, you know, I wanted to do like a definitive guide, you know. And I realised after a bit of research, there's just so many of them, you know, um, so I've had to cut it into little sections. So, but they're all about 600, 700, 800 pages long, these books. Um, and they've got, you know, nearly 300 games in them, that sort of thing. Um, the one thing that um, I managed to do as well, though, because I know a lot of people in the industry, is get interviews with people that made the games as well, which adds a bit of colour to it, you know. I mean, writing a book as well, I imagine that's a big job. I mean, did you kind of know how much work it was going to be before you started doing the first one? It's always more, you, yeah. you don't realise. And um, I always, I mean, I thought I could write. I, people do it the other way around normally, but I, I thought I could write. It turns out I'm rubbish. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, I do get better, but, uh, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of people helping with the proofreading. I mean, I've got better over time about grammar and that sort of thing, but that was a major problem to begin with. You know, I just realised I was, <laughs> you know, you have all these little pretensions, don't you, um, about your skills, and then just realise at some point that you're just rubbish. So. <laughs> well, your story that you, um, you wrote down was the uh, video game development, the rock and roll years, as you mentioned. I mean, was it as rock and roll as we imagined it to be back then? Yes and no. I mean, you had all the bad parts, basically. So you, you had all the being skinned, living under desks, you know, that sort of thing, that sort of side to it. Uh, not a lot of uh, drugs and sex, I have to say. Um, but everything else, yeah. And I didn't go touring either, so it's a bit badly named. <laughs> <laughs> well, if people do want to check it out, I'll obviously put a link to um, your, your pages on Amazon in our show notes this week as well. And, you know, it is amazing how, you know, video games have now become the biggest entertainment medium in the world. You know, it's grown out of those days. Mm. So it's, uh, it's been great getting your story, Sean. I really appreciate you coming on this week. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime.